Hi, I'm Ali Maldro, the host of A Public Affair on Tuesdays. You can listen to this show any day of the week, any hour of the day on the WORT smartphone app or on wortfm.org. If you love what you hear, click that donate button and support community media. Your donation makes a huge difference. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. Good afternoon, Madison. You're listening to WORT 89.9 FM. I'm your host, Ali Maldro. This is a public affair. Huge shout out to our producer, our engineer, our everything. One of the great loves of my life, Jade who's making the show happen today on multiple fronts. Um, We are so excited to get to have a conversation about a great book and a pressing issue today. In 2021, critical race theory or CRT became a hot button political issue. The graduate level academic framework became the target of right wing protests and it was banned from being taught in 18 states. Today's guests have a new book out that is both an illumination of CRT and a response to the weaponization of the term by its opponents in an attempt to erase, censor, and silence all discussion of American racism and its legacy. It does does this through the lens of hip hop. Joining us today are the educators and the new anthology Illuminatic Consequences, the clap back to the opponents of critical race theory. Welcome to the program, Walter Grayson and Damien Durrell Jerry. Hey. How are y'all doing today? Well. Damien, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you for writing a fantastic book. Walter, how are you doing today? Today is a challenge, but I'm joyful to be here with y'all. Uh, it's great to get to have you all on the show. Um, you know, the conversation about critical race theory seemed to kind of pop up out of nowhere. And it can be traced back to Republican pundits kind of uh, fueling the flames of fear and division um, and using critical race theory to build a case around why you cannot trust public education to, uh, you know, uh, guard and 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 harness the the growth of your child's intellect. I'm going to start with you, Danian. Why did you want to write this book? Why did you want to bring more attention to critical race theory? What were what were you hoping to do through the lens of hip hop in in taking this on? Okay, there were a couple of things. First, I wanted to learn more about critical race theory um, before the controversy. Uh, I I had heard of the term, but I was not really, I, I wasn't familiar with it because it was outside of my, um, my area of academic study. So first I wanted to learn. And second, I wanted to, I, I wanted to demystify the, I wanted to demystify not only the term, but I wanted people to know where this controversy came from and why. I wanted to look into that. Uh, one thing I didn't want to do was just say, okay, our book is specifically about critical race theory, because I felt like if we got into a debate with a side that would be un- that's uninformed, that that would further um, mystify the situation and that would just make things worse. So I wanted to bring clarity. And I also wanted to make the term and the ideas accessible to as many people as possible. Oh, that's really excellent to hear. Um, I think because most people are intimidated by the idea of critical race theory. It is, it is a concept that is, you know, particularly academic, particularly intellectual. Um, and I think that misunderstanding has really fueled a lot of the, the resentment for the idea of critical race theory being taught. Uh, Walter, I wanna turn it over to you and and really ask, you know, part of what's happened in the conversation around critical race theory is it's really stoked the flames of fear around what's happening in our K through 12 schools. Um, And it's really rare uh, that critical race theory is taught in early childhood or middle school or high school. Um, So so how does your book kind of uh, allow people to understand I guess, the arena in which critical race theory is most relevant. 
Thank you. So yeah, this this is something I've been engaged with for a number of years is the work of critical race theory as a historian was tremendously important. It grows out of the tradition of black studies. It grows out of the civil rights movement. It opens the door for people to start to look at their world, particularly the way the institutions of justice work and how do they actually reinforce things like Jim Crow segregation and even as far back as racial enslavement. And so that process of teaching people how to discern the ways to protect their rights is at the heart of critical race theory. And it had transformed the way we understood the law. It built on the work of Thurgood Marshall and Charles Hamilton Houston. And in such, created a school of, of legal thought that was beginning to make inroads into the profession. And so this, this uh, misrepresentation was very intentional to under, undermine the way people un understood the law, but it went much further. It then began to conflate critical race theory with culturally responsive teaching. And so mm. culturally responsive teaching is an entirely different field that grows out of some of the conversations and questions under critical race theory, but applies them to schools so that we serve every student to the best of our ability. Culturally responsive teaching was making inroads to say that all students, their dignity, their, their intellect should be respected. And that was what ultimately um, radical conservative activists could not tolerate. They could not tolerate an educational system that affirmed black and immigrant students, that uh, it affirmed lesbian and gay and bisexual transgender students. Um, this is all the, the undergirding of conservatism is the protection of white male patriarchy and capitalism. And, and at the heart of that is, is heterosexism. And so those fundamental principles were now being questioned and they were being taught against um, throughout schools to make for a truly inclusive environment. And that's what then sparked this movement coming out of 2020 was to undermine the way that people engaged the way we turn institutions towards the goals of liberation. And that's where critical race theory became the target and continues to be the target. I have thought uh, about critical race theory as the target um, as, as kind of a, uh, a sleight of hand of sorts, right? Because it's easier to say I'm against critical race theory than to say I'm in get against schools that proactively include black and brown and LGBTQ youth in their families. Um, I want elementary schools and middle schools and high schools that discriminate against kids of color and set white students up for success. Um, I think that's a very hard thing to say that's what you want. And so instead of saying that, you can say I'm against critical race theory, I'm against culturally relevant practices within the classroom. Um, and you don't necessarily have to admit that what motivates you um, is a racism that is aimed at specific people's children. I love that, Danian, you started your answer in saying, um, you know, I, part of the reason I wrote this book was because I wanted to learn more about criti crit critical race theory. Were there things that you, you know, realized while studying critical race theory um, you, you weren't necessarily aware of, or, you know, how did, how did the study of critical race theory open your eyes to the world around you? Well, um, yes, uh, for one, I learned that my interaction, like I come from Memphis, Tennessee. Um, I come from a community that, um, is impoverished and growing up, I had frequent interactions with um, police officers. Um, I, I've been, I, I was, it got to the point where as a child, um, I got used to the idea of, and not just the idea, I got used to being searched um, pretty much on a daily basis, you know, just walking up the street, like going to school or going to the store for my mom. Uh, and when I say searched, I mean like literally police officers shining flashlights in my underwear. And as a child, when you go through things like that, especially on a daily basis, if that's all you see, you think that that's the way life is supposed to be. So I learned that, studying critical race theory, I learned that my interaction 
with law, with the law, and it's most specifically with the unequal distribution of the law as a child, sort of um, shaped my blackness and what it means to be a black child, a black man, a black person. So that was that was one of the main things that I learned. Um, another thing that I learned was this idea of using culture, right, in order to not only spread discourse, but to fight for liberation in the sense that one of the main tenets of critical race theory is the idea of narrative and storytelling, first person storytelling which makes sense, witnessing, right? People telling their own stories, telling what happened. So that was another um, sort of surprise for me because when we, when I you know, think about academia, I'm used to like reading about things and studying, but, I, I, but getting used to like actually going to people and talking to them and learning about them, that was something else that I learned. And uh, I would say one other thing that I learned was um, studying Derek Bell, who is like considered like the forefather, one of the forefathers of critical race theory, right? We know that Kimberly Crenshaw, you know, coined the term. But yeah, it's talk about Kimberly, right? Because basically everything yeah. she ever said has become a, a Republican talking point from identity yeah. politics to, to critical race theory. If yeah. she says it, the Republicans are, are using it. You would, you would imagine that they're reading her, but oftentimes when I bring her up, they have no idea where the terms that they're using come from. Yes, and that was one of the things that I learned quickly when I started researching. I was like, okay, well, every time I see um, conservatives talk about critical race theory, they never mention the authors. Um, they never mentioned um, Kimberly Crenshaw. They never mentioned Derrick Bell. And the only other thing I was going to say about Derrick Bell is I'm very interested in Derrick Bell's creative work. Um, his work as a fiction writer, and most specifically, a speculative fiction writer, mm -hmm. and how his creative work and his work in um, education, his work in law, um, civil rights law in particular, how they played off of each other, how he sort of like, he, how, how he expresses ideas through both mediums. You're listening to WORT 89.9 FM Madison. I'm your host, Ali Maldro. Today we are talking about critical race theory with our guest, Walter Grayson, who is a prominent historian, educator, urbanist. He has spent the past 30 years speaking to audiences in dozens of states and over 100 colleges and high school campuses at dozens of professional and academic conferences to community groups across the country. We also have Danian Durrell Jerry, who is a writer, teacher, MC. He teaches literature and English composition at the University of Memphis, where he teaches literature and English composition. I'm sorry, I wrote that sentence twice. His writing, his writing appears or is forthcoming in Marvel's Black Panther, Tale of Wakanda, Trouble, the, Trouble the Waters, Tale of the Deep Blue, the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, among others. Thank you so much for joining us. If you want to be part of this conversation, all you have to do is dial 608-256-2001, and we will patch you through. We have two great guests who would love to hear from you. Let us know what your questions are about critical race theory, what you, what you think about how we should navigate criticism of critical race theory, and should we be teaching critical race theory? per your understanding or per the understanding you're gaining from the insight of two people who spent a lot of time researching and writing about critical race theory through the lens of hip hop. Walter, I wanna turn to you now and, and ask, you know, as you were, were writing this book, did you find it kind of challenging to pull apart um, what people want you to be afraid of when they're talking about critical race theory versus what critical race theory actually is. Because one of the things I've realized over and over again in my life is when people want you to be afraid of something, they're not necessarily committed to an accurate description of it, right? They want the description of it is meant to uh, incite fear, incite paranoia, incite distrust. Um, was it hard for you to really examine 
what uh, conservatives are saying about critical race theory or the reason critical race theory has become kind of this buzz term in our career, in, in our political arena with what critical race theory actually is academically um, and what that body of work has looked like over the last few decades. So the key was really organizing all of our contributors' work in, in clear ways that allowed there to be a narrative theme that works throughout the text. And we started with the accurate representation. The first three chapters lay out in great detail the actual definition and applications of critical race theory as drafted by the scholars across the legal community. My, my personal connection came through Gene Stefancic and um, Stephen Delgado, who published their work, uh, Critical White Studies. And so those books basically lay the foundation for understanding um, or demystifying what we've done as racial construction through the law. And so that work sets the table for the second section where we go into um, one of my points in being a scholar of racial violence is the emergence of the white citizens councils, their transformation into the council of conservative citizens and the evolution of white nationalism over the last 50 years. And so that piece, and there are a number of really important elements to it, but I, I focus on Matthew Touch's article on Christian nationalism, is this piece where there's a committed movement to destroy civil rights law in all its forms from the very beginning under Brown versus Board of Education. They call themselves massive resistance at first. Then they become white citizens council. They supplement the violence of the, of the Ku Klux Klan. And these then morph into groups like neo-Nazis and, and the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys today, that these political efforts and then pseudo-intellectual efforts to undermine critical race theory are all grounded in an idea of defending and expanding Jim Crow segregation and maintaining racial superiority for people who can claim white status. And so that's the second piece of the book. The piece that I'm most committed to, however, is the third piece, which is based in Afrofuturism and hip hop studies. And so how do we actually move forward into a world that gives everyone an opportunity, that hears everyone's voices and allows us to kind of create new institutions that are committed to justice. And so those sections, um, we had to move from an accurate understanding, we had to confront the evolution of white nationalism, and then ultimately we had to propose an alternative, something that would actually empower and uplift people as opposed to degrade them. I, I really appreciate you breaking down kind of how the, the first three chapters are really an accurate description of the history of critical race theory are really uh, meant to give people real definitions of what critical race theory is um, and really, you know, distinguish the reality of critical race theory from what you're afraid of. I also really appreciate you speaking to the nature of why people are anti-critical race theory. But I do think if you said that, you know, to kind of the average lady in Wisconsin who just wants to send her kiddo to school and just wants to know that they're, they're focusing on math and reading and, you know, the, the core areas of, of study for, for a young person, um, that that person might say, you know, I don't, I don't have any problem with my kid learning about Martin Luther King, or I don't have any problem with my kid learning a little bit about the civil rights movement. But what I don't want is for my kid to feel guilty or responsible for oppression because of their identity. Um, and, and I think that that is, that's kind of the framing I've heard over and over again, that, that people don't want uh, their white child to be indoctrinated with a sense that they are a bad person or that they come from bad people who did bad things throughout history. Um, Walter, can you, can you talk a little bit about, you know, what, what that means in, in a conversation like this? Yeah, this is one of the most seductive counter arguments that conservative voices will try to perpetuate on moderate families, on, on white families who don't look at these issues. And they what they're really obscuring is the fact that learning the history of civil rights, learning the history of ideas like critical race theory actually empower their students to become stronger, more capable, more determined citizens. And so there's a notion of civics that the conservative movement assumes that they're entitled to power, that their perspectives can never be questioned. 
And that's the piece where they're saying, well, that's what's always been. That's what's always uh, existed as the norm. And that cannot continue because it actually leads to things like the school to prison pipeline. It leads to mass incarceration. It leads to the abuse of people all over the country and around the world. That's what they don't want to be questioned is their prerogative to maintain dominance through various forms of harassment and, and terrorism. And so once we get past that, we're not saying to the average white parent, oh, your child should be a same. We're saying they should be empowered. And in fact, that's what scared the conservatives the most. It was white students and white families seeing the ways that they could adopt these ideas to take greater control over their own lives and join a coalition, join what Martin Luther King called the beloved community and be committed to justice across the entire society and around the world. That is, is what the conservatives cannot tolerate. And so for the average white parent, it's like, no, it's the people who are selling you the lies about critical race theory that actually want to keep you disempowered, that want to make you feel ashamed. They are not doing anything to grant you more say in your life and join the broader family of people who want to build strong communities. I, I so greatly appreciate that explanation. And still, I think there's a lot of dialogue about why critical race theory isn't okay for kids. Danian, I want to ask you a similar question, although this is a different conservative argument. You know, there is this, hey, we, we did it. We had the civil rights movement. You all can vote. You got a president. You can go to the same school as us. You can sit at the same restaurant as us. Y'all have been free. You just want to continue to complain about slavery and apartheid. Um, and, and meanwhile, you won. You've taken our spots. Um, and, and you know we just want to be able to send our kids to school and, and know that the emphasis is, is math and reading. What, what do you say to folks who think part of the reason we don't need to talk about critical race theory is because we are living in a post-racial society in which everybody has the same opportunities and we are living in, in a fair nation. If you end up in jail, it's because you did something wrong, not because of what you look like. Well, um, I would think that just a cursory glance at statistics definitely refutes um, those arguments. Um, to say that we live in a post-racial society where everyone is equal is false. It's totally false. Um, when we look at, to just look at a high school history book, um, you, you will get some Martin Luther King and you will get a little, you will get some Rosa Parks and maybe just recently you might get some Malcolm X, but no, you you probably won't get any Malcolm X, but um, you won't you definitely won't get any Marcus Garvey. Um, you definitely won't get any David Walker. There's so much of our history that is left out. You won't even get the you won't even get accurate black music history in mm. the school system. Um, and one of our chapters relates to that subject specifically and the importance of teaching black music history, the importance of teaching about the black men and women who were on the plantations and somehow managed to use their culture, not only to express themselves, but to claim their own humanity. If you look at the divisions of wealth in the United States, there is a clear racial division in the way that wealth is distributed. Um, it's not even close. So that is my response. Um, people, and most specifically children, need to learn accurate history. They need to learn that black people have contributed to the greatness of the United States not only since its inception, but before its inception, that black people have a we black people have a claim to the United States because we helped build it. And there really is no getting around that. And those things need to be taught in school. And there's there there is no compromising in teaching math, in teaching English, by teaching what is accurate. In fact, by not teaching what is accurate, we give students 
false perceptions. We give students, um, especially when it comes to power, when it comes to privilege and the right to have it, we give students false perceptions. Um, we make students believe that it is their right to have certain things that really they need to work for. So teaching accurate history will actually bring students together and it will let everyone know that we all need to do our parts in order to make this nation truly great, in order to make it better. Thank you so much for, for, for speaking to that and to speak, for speaking to that with such clarity, right? Because you, you hear people kind of talk about the, the idea that America is um, a fair and equal space. That's not how I experience the United States. Um, but I think it's really helpful to hear that the data just confirms that we live in an intensely racialized society and we always have. And if we wanna resolve that, we have to acknowledge that. We have to confront that and we have to do it regularly. And we have to involve the next generation of young people uh, to join us in doing that work. You're listening to WORT 89.9 FM. Today, we're talking about Illomatic Consequences, the clap back to the opponents of critical race theory. The name is a play on uh, the Nas Illuminatic album. Talk to me a little bit and talk to the folks who are listening to WORT 89.9 today. This is a public affair. I'm your host, Ali Maldro. Talk to us a little bit about why you you drove this title um, from from that album. And I guess I'll start with you, Walter. Cool. So uh, I've been uh, teaching hip hop, film uh, philosophy and politics since 1994. And so this is the same time Nas' album was, was coming out into the world. So his lexicon, his vision of storytelling and how do you actually create compelling narrative poetry so that you actually illustrate the life that people are experiencing that is often not covered, that is ignored in mass media. That's what Illmatic does. That's what made it resonate as one of the greatest pieces of art created in hip hop culture. And so Illmatic has become a pervasive language to talk about the things that are irrepre irrepressible, that they're mm -hmm. unable to be stopped. That's it's the coolest, edgiest way to then move the discourse forward, to change and dignify your life. And so the way that Nas does that and crafts it throughout the album then became the standard is that everybody measured themselves against the kind of lyricism that he delivered. And so over time, that piece has become recognized at the core of hip hop studies. And so um, our, our core artistic chapter from Stacey Robinson uh, came from the fact that he was a Nasir Jones fellow at Harvard University doing work that showed how the lyrics on the Elmatic album would actually illustrate so many of the themes and so many of the realities that were being addressed by critical race theory. And so the art at the heart of the book basically drives the reader to understand how to use hip hop to confront injustice. And that ultimately, in my view, that the consequence that flows from this, the fact that we stand up and create greater liberation for all people out of whatever oppression we face, that is an illmatic consequence. That is an automatically dope consequence of our labor, that we go forward and we cannot be repressed. We cannot be stopped. We will overcome whatever adversity we face. And so that's the piece for me that I took from what Nas crafted as an album creeping up on 30 years ago and could use that as a symbol to talk about the ongoing struggle for justice today. Mm. I, I so appreciate that explanation. <clears throat> it's not necessarily where I thought you were going to go in terms of the tone of that album and the fact that you all included the phrase clapback and, and clapback usually um, has has an element of, of retaliatory aggression associated with it. Um, Thank you, thank you for so much for, for speaking to that. What I want to do right now is play a little clip of an ad that has been used to uh, prompt people to be afraid of critical race theory, and it is being uh, aimed specifically at the residents here in Wisconsin. Um, so I'm going to ask our amazing producer slash engineer slash wearing all the hats today, Jade, um, if she will, will play it. And then uh, Danian and Walter, I'd love to hear your response. 
Yeah. Um, so this is Jade, <laughs> the producer of the show. Um, just to give a little bit of context, this is a report from Faye Parker, who is the news producer here at WORT. And um, on September 10th, she was watching the Green Bay Packers and heard an ad that she found suspicious. And so she dug into it. Um, and this is her about three minute and 31 second um a report from September 11th, 2023. This one-minute ad features a father and his daughter, interspersed with pictures of children playing and American flags. Daddy teaches you can be anything in this world that you want to be, right? Don't Daddy teach you that? Yeah, and it doesn't matter if you're black or white or any color. See, this is how this is how children think right here. Critical race theory wants to end that. It also uses out-of-context comments from a teacher at Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. School, a Milwaukee Middle School centering African-American immersion. The teacher did not return a request for comment today. The ad takes aim at a niche academic and legal framework taught in higher education known as critical race theory, parroting a frequent conservative talking point that children are being taught CRT. The ad is the work of Be Good to Kids, a limited liability company registered in Ohio six months ago. It's one of 71 LLCs or nonprofits created this year by Langdon Law, a firm run by David Langdon. Other organizations formed by Langdon this year include Working Ohioans Against Recreational Marijuana, Coalition to Restore American Values, Conservative Alliance of Republicans, Cambridge Digital Bible Study, and both an LLC and a PAC with the name Parents Against Stupid Stuff. A 2015 report from Politico investigated Langdon. That article, which described him as the suburban Ohio lawyer behind the right's dark money machine, found that Langdon poured at least $22 million into federal and state elections. Among those candidates benefiting from groups created by Langdon Law include Ohio Secretary of State Frank LaRose, who's running for the Senate next year. He's also the subject of an FEC complaint that alleges LaRose delayed registering as an official candidate and coordinated with an outside political group. According to the Center for Media and Democracy, a watchdog investigating political corruption, Langdon Law donated more than $400,000 to Scott Walker during his recall campaign. This was done through the Coalition to Restore American Values, whose funding comes from a Koch brothers think tank. They're one of the organizations listed under the John Doe investigation, which accused Scott Walker of campaign finance violations. The official website for the American Principles Project, another of Langdon's conservative think tanks, takes aim at what it calls hostile progressive attacks on parents and children. In 2021, Republicans in the Wisconsin State Legislature introduced legislation designed to ban the teaching of critical race theory in K-12 and UW system schools. Meanwhile, experts dispute the central claim of the ad, that children are learning critical race theory. Kevin Lawrence Henry, a professor in the UW-Madison Department of Educational Leadership and Policy Analysis, told WORT in 2021 that CRT is rarely taught below the college level. Most critical race theory courses developed in law schools. These were uh, approaches to help lawyers understand how race was operating in the law. So critical race theory started in law schools and professional schools, uh, and it increasingly moved to graduate programs in sociology and education and public health um, to help individuals that are both practitioners as well as those that would like to be researchers um, understand how racial disparities were operating in their particular endeavors or their particular field. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. Thank you so much, Jade, for, for connecting us with that little little clip. Um, I, I want to start with you, Danian. Um, what, what is your response to both the advertisement we heard and then kind of the breakdown of, of how politically entrenched this attack is? Okay. Um, first, um, I find it interesting that the idea of celebrating diversity is branded as... Um, racist. Um, the idea that learning about Black history, um, learning about African American culture impositions the people in power, but not but also being branded as, okay, if we teach about Blackness, then that separates 
the students. But that is totally false. Um, ch children, especially children in school, they should be made to celebrate, right, the differences that they see in each other, right? Um, there is nothing, there is no tenet or there's no part of critical race theory that denounces white people. If we just want to break it down like that. Um, what it does is it denounces or it and denounce might not be the best word, but what it does, it, it investigates or it looks at disparities within the law, right? Which is why that's the which is why it was created anyway. You had lawyers like excuse me, Kimberly Crenshaw, they're fighting in courts, they're fighting for civil rights. There's a civil rights bill passed, but there's there's a difference between the bill and the actual the action that is taking place, right? Within the within uh, public institutions and private institutions. So I found that, um, and I also found it interesting that, of course, um, a black person is saying that, well, yes, um, critical race theory sort of gives black children, make, makes black children feel like they have a leg down or that they should feel uh, encumbered by their blackness, which is which is totally false. Right. What critical race theory, the ideas of it, which and that's another thing like we are, we've already said that critical race theory is being taught in colleges. But just the idea of racial diversity in the classroom, right, can uplift children. Now, when we talk about politics, let's say this. They first they said that they want to stop critical race theory being taught in elementary schools, right? But from the beginning, that was a ruse. Legis the recent legislation has gone on to college campuses um, in Florida, Tennessee, Arkansas, right? And what you have, especially in Florida, you have this atmosphere where even in the college classroom, teachers can be accused of spread or of um, spreading what are called divisive concepts and the divisive con the divisive concepts aren't necessarily defined it's just anything that um supposedly separates students right so really it, it really isn't about elementary and um, high school students in my opinion in my opinion, I would argue that it is about co-opting and weaponizing education from the K through 12, right? But also going into post-secondary education, right? To, to, um, to control the narrative and also to control the narrative in a way that is beneficial to the people in power. I'm very interested in the idea of political corruption that I heard, right? So it's funny because, you know, they're saying, well, we don't see critical race theory should not be taught in schools, right? But they are actually, their actions, right, necessitate critical race theory because they literally are breaking the law on one hand, while they're sort of like come with this other face, say, okay, well, we want to protect, you know, the integrity. We want to protect children's feelings and we want to protect the integrity of these classrooms. Republicans so have been uh, attacking schools, particularly here in Wisconsin, right? We heard kind of about the backing of, of Scott Walker. One of the first things Scott Walker did when he got into office was attacked unions um, mm -hmm. and, and really did a lot of damage to the teachers unions um, in the state of, of Wisconsin. So, you know, it's interesting to hear that Republicans, uh, don't want educators to be unionized. They don't want to fund public education in this state, um, but they really want to monitor how certain things are talked about. The other thing I want to ask you about, Walter, um, in terms of your response to that clip, is why, you know, we have all this concern that kids might be learning too much about Black history, might be learning too much about kids of color, um, might be learning too much about race. Um, why, why isn't that ever compared to what kids learn about white people, 
throughout history. Um, I've argued for a long time that slavery is not black history. That's like me punching you in the face and saying you got a history of getting punched in the face. No, I have a history of punching people in the face, right? Uh, slavery is the history of, of white people. It's what white people are willing to do. Um, and, and so when we talk about the, the phenomena of oppression, we could talk about that as, as, as white history. We could emphasize um, the roles white people have had in creating oppressive systems. And white people are emphasized within education. You, you can pull a kid aside and talk about any area or subject of education, and they will be able to highlight a white man who made a major contribution to that field, whether it is art, whether it is literature, whether it is mathematics, whether it is science. Talk to me a little bit about why there isn't that same concern over the emphasis of white people or the emphasis of their contributions in academic areas um, versus the concern around, you know, the, the rising investment in, in culturally inclusive classrooms or the rising investment in something like critical race theory. This is so important in Wisconsin, as we saw in the last Senate election with uh, Ron Johnson and um, this, how narrowly he was able to motivate some moderate to conservative voters to support him. And it's the idea that white, male, Christian, wealthy men are entitled to be in charge. And that 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 is the story we must tell. And we can't focus on these these aspects of their identity. And so there are two parts. So I, I, wanna, I wanna pause you right there. You're talking about when Ron Johnson most recently defeated Mandela Barnes. Um, but Ron Johnson has run for Senate three times. And before that, he beat a white incumbent from Jamesville named Russ Feingold. And then he ran against Russ, Russ Feingold again. Um, so the, the racialized component of it comes into play when we're talking about Mandela Barnes. When we're talking about why Ron Johnson was successful running against a white Democratic incumbent, um, I think we have to broaden the conversation to what appeals to Wisconsin about somebody like Ron Johnson. And I no, to me, he's like the derivative of both George W. Bush and Donald Trump on a national scale. There was a white anxiety about equity with people of color, with immigrants in Wisconsin. And he tapped into and really weaponized this hostility, this fear um, that motivated large sections of the white population that might otherwise have voted for Feingold or Barnes. But for what I'm, I'm really going at here is that the whole framework we're using that is actually taught by critical race theory is against what conservatives believe they're defending. It is a sense of judging people individually, that there is no cohesive white identity. There is no cohesive black or Latino identity. They did this just with the Supreme Court's ruling this past year. It's to say people can only be judged on their individual merit. You can no longer look at these kind of statistical trends about the way different groups of people have been treated presently or historically. And that's their ultimate victory is to try and change the framework to say that there is no white privilege. There is no white, white bias that works to kind of give advantages to people who claim white identity. These people have just worked hard and they have individually succeeded on their own merits. And it completely obstructs the idea of systemic racism, systemic sexism. And so breaking down this, this illusion of meritocracy, individuals only get what they go and hard work and have worked hard for. That's essential to the project of sustaining a, a, an accurate line of reasoning. It's really not even critical race theory. It's just a knowledge of the way institutions function. They, every bank doesn't judge each person applying for a loan individually. They run them through a credit score that is deeply inflected with all kinds of pieces of identity politics and shared institutional interest. And so the ultimate expression of the hypocrisy here is the fact that the line of reasoning advocated by the opponents of critical race theory leads to the subversion of law and leads to things like January 6th where mobs form in order to just maintain white advantages, male advantages, this sense of normality that obscures the way that they dominate. And so this piece where if you want to follow this line of reasoning, it leads to mob action, chaos, injury, and death. And that's the piece that I think we don't highlight enough, is that these are functionally terrorists that are actually advancing by any means necessary, a way to maintain power.
And until we reject their entire line of reasoning, we're never going to achieve justice. Walter, you're just like one of my favorite people ever. Um, and I am so excited that we get to have this conversation with y'all and that you all wrote this really, really interesting, really thoughtful book um, that was just deeply compelling to get to read and experience. I want to bring on our, our caller. So, Sarah, we've got a little bit of time left in the hour. How are you doing today? Very good. Well, thank you for the program. I, I, I can I'd like to say that you can hear and see in the English language in America and other English places that black has come to infer difference and perhaps fear of black and brown people. And when we read and when we write, we have and speak, we have to become aware of this. It must be taught in school, yes. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for talking to us about the importance of language. I, I think when, as you were speaking, Sarah, I thought about uh, a piece by Martin Luther King where he says, you know, there's over 147 ways to describe white in the English language. They are all positive. There's 153 ways in the English language to say dark or black. They are all negative. I, I often think um, that we're asking the wrong question about racism, right? I've never asked somebody if they are racist, but if your neighborhood is racist, your school district is racist, your language is racist, your country is racist, what choice do you have but to be racist? Um, unless you're willing to do something about all of those other factors. Um, and still, I think racism is, is a hard thing to outrun um, when you come from a society like ours. Danian, I want to ask, you know, as you were writing this book, did you have a sense of what you hope people will do with the information? Um, do you hope that your book reads as a call to action? And if it is a call to action, what do you want people to do? Yes, um, definitely. What um, I want people to do is definitely take the, the lessons and the testimony from the brilliant um, scholars and activists and teachers, um, writers that sent us their work, and to apply those principles to whatever discipline they come from. I want this book to be used in a way that is definitely multidisciplinary. So I want teachers to read this book and figure out ways that they can deal with race um, progressively in their classrooms, ways that they can protect their students. Um, I want physicians to read this book. And I want physicians to think about the ways that racism affects Black people. And I want physicians to figure out how they can help to combat that, definitely, because that's something very important that I feel like gets overlooked a little bit. Um, for some African Americans, it, it, it's dangerous to go to the hospital. And I will say, especially for Black women, um, I would say, like, you know, um, my entertains my writers and my creatives. I want them to read this book and I want them to take the ideas and, and um, really challenge their own notions of what it means to produce a piece of literature and what that piece of literature can mean in terms of the struggle for liberation. Um, just a few examples. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for, for speaking to that and, and for calling people to action and also for highlighting how Black women are disproportionately impacted by discrimination in our healthcare system. You are talking to a Black woman who had two kids at home, um, in part to avoid the dynamics of discrimination that I have experienced um, when I've needed uh, medical help or needed uh, healthcare support. So, so thank you for, for, for speaking to that. Walter, I want to ask you, you know, who are you hoping reads this book? And I want to frame that question with, with something that I think is, if there's any opportunity in the conversation around critical race theory right now, it is an opportunity to talk about what is and is not developmentally appropriate for our children. So if you don't think it's appropriate for my kiddo to read about identity, 
then you probably don't think it's appropriate to kick my baby out of school, right? If you don't think it's appropriate for my child to learn more about their own history, then you probably don't think it's appropriate to arrest my child. So who is supposed to read your book? Is your book developmentally appropriate for young people? How, how young is too young to start talking about identity and race? And if your book is not the best book for a kid in elementary school to learn about this, do you have any recommendations in terms of books that are great for young kids to, to start talking about identity and difference um, in a way that is healthy and developmentally appropriate for them? Wow, big question. I'm gonna try and do it very quickly. Um, I have a document called the Wakanda Syllabus that includes multi-levels of different work for different perspectives, different disciplines, different levels of reading. I think particularly of uh, Born on the Water, this Hannah Nicole Jones um, child book that's accompanying the 1619 Project. So Born on the Water is really, really good book to get for younger children. Uh, for folks who want to pick up Illmatic Consequences, this is for anyone who loves education who believes that we all continue to learn. In fact, that believe in Du Bois's, W.E.B. Du Bois's principle, that in the 5,000 years of human history, no right is more important than our right to learn. That is the most hard fought and difficult right that we have gained, and we must never let it go. And so this is the piece. If you believe in learning, you believe in education, that you want to have democratic society in the future, Illmatic Consequences is absolutely essential for you to read. Oh, thank you so much for, for speaking to who should be reading this book um, and what this book is about. Danian, I, I wanna ask you, but before we jump off, um, are there are there books that you think helped you to write this book and, and what are those? Um, definitely the big volume, Critical Race Theory, um, edited by Kimberly Crenshaw. That's kind of like definitely because um, that really, the, the essays and the writers in that book, it helped to ground me in what the actual discipline is. And not only that, it helped to ground me in terms of the fight that our civil rights lawyers have been waging um, for decades. So I would say I was definitely like pair of those book, um, Illmatic Consequences, the clapback, and yes, read read Kimberly Crenshaw's book too, um, definitely. If you have never clapped back, I want you to know that it is really enjoyable and that you should read this book just so that you can fuel your own clapbacks. Clapping back is satisfying. Um, you're listening to WORT 89.9 FM. I'm Ali Muldrow. This is a public affair. I just got to talk about critical race theories with two incredible authors, Walter and Danian. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for writing your book. Sarah, thank you for calling. And Jade, thank you for doing everything behind the scenes and connecting us with this conversation. Per use, you're the best. Don't take no prisoners if you can't afford to feed none. Don't start no fights if you cannot predict the outcome. Don't make donations where you cannot get your dough back. The apathetic bullshit to send them all your Prozac. I will not climb into your telephone tree and hell no.